0: I am grateful for the opportunity each and every Lord's Day to speak to us from God's Word. And if you will, <clears throat> before we dive into 1 Peter chapter 2, why don't you turn over in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, and <clears throat> Titus, we are given... An explanation of what the grace of God can do for us. The grace of God can show us and convict us and challenge us to live a godly life. And in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, this grace of God, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions To Titus chapter 2 first because it gives us a perfect ramp, a springboard to talking out of 1 Peter chapter 2 about this matter of the grace of God and what the grace of God does for us as citizens of the kingdom of God. This whole section of 1 Peter is just interwoven with this idea of how to live out the grace of God in the midst of a watching world. I might say it like this, the greatest illustrative tool, the greatest illustrative tool in the evangelization of the lost is the living of a godly life. I'll say that again, the greatest illustrative tool And the evangelization of the lost is the living of a godly life. Didn't you read that just now as I did in Titus chapter 2, where we're to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, even as a worker toward a boss, even as a citizen of this world knowing that we're actually citizens of heaven itself, or perhaps, as we'll talk about in this series later in the summer about a godly wife or a or a husband who wants to make a claim to godliness and wants to show how the grace of god is changing us from the inside out this is this is what will occupy us in this series the most important effectiveness illustratively to a watching world in our evangelism is showing what the gospel has done in our lives. I mean, don't get me wrong. Speaking a word of the gospel is incredibly important. It's crucial. I mean, Romans ten seventeen says that we are to see Christ and to speak a word about Christ to others because it says that's where faith comes, hearing a word, a message about Christ. So we have to speak it. We have to verbalize it. Anybody who says, well, I'll just uh, sort of let people see who I am, well, that's good, and we're going to be occupying ourselves with that very truth in this series, but it's actually living out or adorning the doctrine of the gospel of God by both what I say and how I live. And this is incredibly important. It explains how the grace of God is operating in the soul of a man or woman. You not only verbalize it, as you must, but you also live it out through your life so that people can both see and hear the gospel from you. One of the greatest books, if not the greatest book I've ever read on witnessing to others is this book by Will Metzger. Called Tell the Truth. It's been in a couple of editions, and it is a wonderful manual that weds good doctrine and good approaches to evangelism, both the content of the gospel and the idea of how practically to share such a gospel. And Will Metzger, who, by the way, as the author of this book, has been evangelizing students on the campus of the University of Delaware since 1965. In this book, Tell the Truth speaks of the grace of God, both in the salvation of the sinner, but also as we witness to others and how we ought to both live it and speak it. This is what he says, very wise. As my passion for God centered evangelism grew, I longed to emphasize the centrality of sovereign saving grace. Why? Because the quickening grace of God in salvation completely exalts God. Grace is God honoring and humanity humbling. A clear understanding of that success in evangelism is a result of God's initiating grace, which frees the evangelist from the fear of rejection by others. Indeed, evangelism is impossible without grace, for grace is what frees non-believers from their enslavement to sin. He goes on to write, grace continues its effect beyond our initial liberation from unbelief and continues to energize Christians after nonbelievers become Christians the gracious power of the holy spirit upholds them throughout their christian journey saved under god-centered and grace-oriented evangelism they have a wonderful framework for a christian life of god-centered grace-oriented sanctification The majesty of grace in salvation brings honor to the Father who designed it, prestige to the Son who accomplished it, and fame to the Holy Spirit who affects it. You ought to read this book. You ought to read it from cover to cover. It will inform you. It will encourage you. It is thoroughly biblical, and it's the kind of book that will help us live out how not only to speak the gospel but to live the gospel in front of others. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2 for our morning's hour and let's look specifically at verses 11 and 12. This is a this is a kind of bridge text, verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2, it hearkens back to what has already been written for us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 leading up to verse 11 but it also catapults us does 1 Peter 2:11 and 12 into the next section that goes all the way as I said to chapter 3 verse 7 about what commonly is called by commentators the household code the household code what do they mean by that well Paul in Ephesians and Colossians Peter here, in 1 Peter, uses this idea of how the gospel affects you in every area of your life, including your life as a citizen, a citizen of a kingdom, even the kingdom of earth, a government, an institution, a a king, a president, an emperor. How do you live out the gospel under such a kingdom, such a citizenry? And then we're given instruction by... Paul, as I said, in Ephesians and Colossians, and also Peter here in 1 Peter 2 and 3, how to live also as a person who is endeavoring to understand your employment, your work, what you do in this world. Now, of course, in the first century, that included slaves and masters. Uh, We might translate it into our context as those who are under the master of someone who is employing us to do work for him or her. And uh, there are rules of engagement. Even as you are working under someone who's a Christian or maybe a non-Christian, someone who's a noble believer and someone who is not, or maybe even someone who is not only not a believer but a very unjust person, who wants to cut corners, wants to do things with you or demanding of you that you are called upon to respond to in some way. Well, as a Christian, how do you respond to such things? Or perhaps maybe in this household list or codes of commands and illustrations, you and I might want to address the matter of what it's like to be a godly wife in a Christian home. Or maybe commands or instruction about being a godly wife in a home where you've come to Christ but your husband has not. Remember in the first century there were homes of persons, moms and dads and children for whom this gospel was coming upon them and perhaps the gospel was taking root in a woman's life, a wife's life, and yet not the husband, at least not at that point. Or perhaps a husband had the gospel taken root in his life and his affections, but not the wife. Or perhaps the the mom and the dad, the husband and the wife are believers, uh, but they're endeavoring to live out the gospel in front of their children, perhaps even adult children who've already left the home. I mean, all of these venues, all of these platforms are an opportunity for us to see what it's like to live out our Christianity in both word and deed. That's why these passages are here for us. They give us practical and doctrinal instruction for how we ought to live as a citizen, as a slave or a worker, as a wife, as a husband. Now, of course, Paul and Ephesians and Colossians talks about even how children are to obey their parents. That's a part of it. Peter does not include that here. He just gives us the four categories, how to be a, a godly citizen in a country, especially a country that doesn't obey Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They have a different emperor, as it were, or how we ought to be godly workers in a society in which We're called upon to cut corners or do the wrong thing, or even if we're to do the right thing, to take credit for it and not give glory to God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Or practical instruction and doctrine on how to be that godly wife, especially if you are unequally yoked. Or perhaps for the husbands, how they ought to treat their wives. You and I know well that in the first century, many, many women, if not most of the women of that society, were not treated well at all. And because of that, those first century Christians needed much instruction, much clarity, much encouragement, and at times, yes, even admonishment. So this is our summer. This is our study. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through this passage and as we go through chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 7, we're going to find out God's instructions for all of these things that I've just mentioned. And the springboard, the platform, uh, the, the jumping-off place for all of that is here in verses 11 and 12. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens sojourners, and exiles, or strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, or fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, your soul. Peter goes on to say in verse 12, keep your conduct or your behavior among the Gentiles honorable or I like this term, excellent, so that when they speak against you, or better yet, when they slander you as evildoers, they may see or because of your seeing, because of their seeing your good works, your good deeds, they will glorify God in or on the day of visitation. The reason why I only want to develop two verses is that there's too much here. There's just too much here. I mean, we could go on, of course, to talk about verse 13, and we will, submission to authority, submission to the government, submission to the emperor, and we will. But if this is that fulcrum, if this is that platform, if this is that jumping-off spot, we ought to really understand this well because before we can get into the various roles that we occupy in our world, we ought to understand this very, very clear urging. In fact, that's probably a good place to start, that idea of urging. Do you see that word that Peter uses there? I urge you. What he does is he says, I implore you. This is actually a word that Paul uses in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I urge you to do something. And there he says, I urge you to present yourselves as a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here, Peter, not Paul, is saying, I urge you as well to do something that sounds a little bit like that. And by the way, the very first word that he uses here is beloved, agape toy. This is This is a term of endearment. I mean, he's talking about brothers and sisters in the faith. And in the context of 1 Peter as a whole, this is a book that talks predominantly about suffering. And that's a context that is important for us to know in 1 Peter because... As you read this letter and as you have read it and as you have studied it, this is is a kind of context in which you and I might not know and certainly don't as they knew quite well, agonizingly too well. When we watched DVD in the first hour of some of these areas of, of Southeast Asia, dominated by by Islam, dominated by dark, twisted religion, dominated by all kinds of sinful behaviors, enslavements. It's it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch if indeed you're only centering in on all of the sin and degradation and filth and ugliness of what sin does and what sin is. But in the midst of watching it, you can also see the glorious hope of the gospel that God is doing a work in the midst of struggling, suffering people. Well, this is what was happening in Peter's time. This is what was happening in First and 2 Peter of our New Testaments. This is what was going on. And undoubtedly, because this suffering was occurring to this, this whole cadre of beleaguered saints of all different ethnicities and backgrounds, and they were being exiled, and they're strangers, and they're aliens uh, to the the present uh, idea of what the world ought to be but isn't. They wanted and they needed great encouragement about how to endure their suffering. No wonder Peter starts by saying, beloved, beloved, I urge you, I implore you. This is This is not necessarily a word of command, but I think in the context when he says that you are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which I think contextually is a command, this urgency of Peter is taking on new ideas, new meaning, new force. I urge you to do something. What is it that he's urging these beleaguered saints to do? What what is he telling them to do? Well in our remaining time there are two things, two things that he's telling us. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11b and then of course verse 12. And here's the first one. Here's what's contained in the latter part of verse 11. Here's what I'm telling you as aliens, strangers, exiles, whatever version you have of your English Bible, I urge you as those who are these distressed, beleaguered Christians in this tested land, here's what I'm urging you to do, to abstain from the passions of the flesh or fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, your soul. So title of the message this morning is The Christian's Excellent Behavior. Christians excellent behavior taken right from that NASB passage that says that you would be excellent ESV honorable well what's the christians honorable behavior what's the christians excellent behavior i mean if you're really aspiring as a christian to be a spiritual force in your community in your home in your your municipality in your neighborhood And what's the answer? I mean, someone says, I mean, the Bible is so vast. There's all kinds of commands and injunctions and prohibitions and warnings and encouragements. There there are so many of them. I mean, how could I answer uh, such a huge question about how I could behave as an excellent Christian in my various spheres of involvement? How can I do that? Well, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses, in the latter part of verse 11, this idea. The Christian's excellent behavior comes through saying no to fleshly desires. I mean, he could have, he could have chosen everything, anything, right? He could have given up an absolute list that would have been as long as your arm about, number one, here's how to be a Christian, excellent Christian Here's number two, number three, number four, and that list could go on and on. You could look at a a whole list of verses, passages, even Bible books that would tell you, do this, don't do this. Live this way, don't live that way. And what Peter does is he chooses, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to do one thing for their hearts, for their minds, and that was to tell them, in a generic sense, in a general sense, to be sure, this one thing. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, if you ask me, that's a lifetime issue, right? Perhaps no wonder he says it that way. Because of all the other lists you could come up with, they're all incorporated in that one statement. Every one of them. It most certainly is. What are you to do? How are you to be excellent in your Christian behavior? Abstain. And I think this has, as I said, imperatival force. Abstain. Stay away from. Don't be involved with Peter says, you are to be cognizant of, to be aware of, and most certainly to stay away from, notice this phrase, especially in the ESV, the passions of the flesh. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? I mean, the word passions, it might be a benign term and might even be a good term in a great, godly, virtuous context. In fact, the word epithumia in the Greek text is actually used in some contexts, the very word here, that speaks of virtue. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul tells Timothy, here are the various qualifications for an elder. And he says... If anyone aspires to the office, the office of elder, the office of overseer, it is a fine task, a noble work that he desires to do. That word desires there is the same word that's used in this context, Epithemia, passions, and in a positive context, 1 Timothy 3.1, some man who wants to be virtuous, some man who wants to be godly, some man who wants to oversee the very church of God, that kind of desire is awesomely virtuous. That's the kind of guy you're looking for. That's, that's the kind of man you want. That's the qua- a kind of qualified elder, overseer, bishop, guardian for your souls. But here it's clearly not positive. It's negative. I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, from the epithumia, from the, from the lusts of the flesh. Remember that from 1 John 2? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. This, this is what Peter is saying. If you want to be an excellent behaviorist as a Christian, If that's the way you want to behave, then you have to do this, and that is abstain. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14. Here's one way that he describes it, 1 Peter 1, 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions, there it is again, of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we go right back to what I said at the very beginning. And what I said at the very beginning was this, that Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God teaches us, goads us, pushes us, prompts us, pushes us to the very place where we understand the grace of God not as licentiousness, not as the liberty to do anything I want as a Christian, but as actually the grace of God that pushes me to pursue righteousness. The grace of God, it's intended by God not only to save me, but to sanctify me. Not only to put me in the right with God, that's my justification, but also to make me right, to to create in me a kind of practical righteousness in which you and I are, with fits and stops to be sure, but you and I are progressively being made more holy. Because God is holy, which means the very crucifying of the flesh, which is hard, taxing, because the flesh is rel- relentless in its attacks. You say, in my soul he is? This, this sinful foe? Yes, and you know what the Bible does? Paul, Romans 7, other places, maybe even perhaps here. The Bible Almost personifies sin as a person, almost a, a kind of battle between me and myself uh, a, a galactic uh, a galactic battle that sees my warring with my own soul you say well i think I think it's, it 's really more than that. I think we're talking about Satan, and he's outside of me. Well, he is outside of us, and as Christians, he can't indwell us, and he certainly works to tempt us to sin, right? So he's there, he's around, but he's not inside us. Uh, perhaps you're saying, maybe it's the world. Maybe it's all of the temptations of the world. Maybe it's that billboard. Maybe it's that television program. Maybe it's the internet. Maybe it's uh, a conversation with a friend. Maybe it's, it's all of those things that also are outside of me. It's the temptations of the world. And again, to be sure, the world and its allurements have their tempting place in my soul. Of course they do. But did you know that there are often times, and I know you do because it's something that I grapple with as well, do you know that there are times where you and I don't need Satan anywhere around us? We're just sinning all on our own without him? He's he's somewhere else, folks. He's somewhere hot. I don't know, Phoenix, uh, somewhere. Congress. <laughs> Congress. He, he's He's somewhere and he's nowhere around me. You say, well, okay, it's the world then. It's the world and its allurements. It's the world and its evil doings. Well, that's a formidable foe, but sometimes in my little soul, I don't need any of the world's allurements because what I'm battling with is my own heart. You say, is that the case when I'm a regenerate person, a Christian, a believer in Christ? Yes, because you know that the moment you're saved, the moment you receive justification from God doesn't mean that you and I are totally and completely new in Christ. Oh, we're new. We're new as far as our justification goes. I've been declared not guilty. I've been declared righteous, but... God doesn't just transport me immediately into heaven, although I wish He would. I have to live the rest of my life so that you and I are battling not against just Satan and his wiles, as formidable as they are, not just against the world and its allurements, as formidable as they are, but sometimes I'm just battling little old me, even in my regenerate condition and I'm fighting a formidable person that almost seems this idea of sin as though I'm battling another person inside of me. So what does he say? What is this warfare? What, what is it that's going on? Well, you could look at Ephesians chapter 6, and you could look at verses 10 to 18, and you could say, well, there's the devil, and you, you said he was in Phoenix or somewhere else. But he seems to be said by Paul to be all around and he's firing those darts at me and he wants to consume me. Yes, that's true. And that's why the Bible tells us that there are these three entities who battle against us and Satan is one of them and the world is another. But also there is my fleshiness, my remaining sin, the sin that still resides within me. Someone says, well, is it, is it just my, is it just my, my actions? No, according to James 4.1, it's also your motives. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And, of course, you and I want to say, well, then just, let's just get rid of those passions. Let's just get them out of there. Then I'll be Okay. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is is perhaps in the quietness of your room or perhaps the quietness of your own heart that it's not so quiet and there's a raging inferno. Aren't you glad you have the Word of God? Aren't you glad you have the Spirit of God? And aren't you so glad you have the people of God to help you, to help us fight against these three diabolical things, Satan, the world, and even self? This is what what Peter's talking about. Abstain from the passions, the fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul you want to be an excellent Christian, have an excellent behavior? You say, well, after what you've just taught, is it possible? Yes, if it were not possible, Peter wouldn't go on to tell us how to do it, and he does. What does he say? Well, this is the second thing. Look at verse 12. This is the Second and final outline point, the Christian's excellent behavior comes in using your life for the sake of the gospel. Using your life for the sake of the gospel. I mean, the first is internal, and I would grant you it is a mammoth battle, and it's a battle against your own sinfulness, your own remaining sin, and we could say a lot more about that But one thing we want to do as well is not just always focus on the internal battle, but also the external command to present the gospel to others. And I know there's a temptation for all of us, myself included, for someone to say, well, I can't do that right now. I can't go out and and spread the gospel when I know I'm battling with all of these lusts inside of me. You'll have to get somebody else who's, who's on a higher spiritual plane. And you know what? The Bible tells us that is a major spiritual cop out. That's a major spiritual cop out. All of us are on various levels. And yet we're all tempted to say, well, you know, you're the preacher, uh, the elders, uh, the deacons, uh, the godly people, uh, you know, this this fellow over here and this this gal over here. You, you guys are far greater in your in your spiritual walk than I am. I'm just I'm just sort of battling my my own remaining sin in my own heart. So so you guys just go ahead, just, just go on, you, you guys do it, and we'll, we'll, we'll pray for you, we'll pray for you. Do you know that in the midst of having the Christian excellent behavior that you're fighting your remaining sin on the inside, at the very self-same time you and I are commanded, called upon to be preaching the gospel to others? And I know someone might say, well, that seems so hypocritical. Let me ask you a question. When do you think you'll be ready? When do we think we'll we'll sort of uh, deal with the sin issue and then we'll get on to the gospel issue for others? I suggest we do both and we do both at the same time and we do both continually. And by the way, verse 12 is right after verse 11. And it says, keep your conduct, keep your behavior among the Gentiles, among unbelievers, honorable, excellent, noble. How can I do that when I'm trying to slay all the passions of the flesh? You can and you must. Because you can and you must do both of these things at the same time. However, failingly, you might be doing it. Look, if we had to clean up all and every aspect of our lives before we talk to the very first person about the gospel, what would we be? I submit to you, dead. Philippians six. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Look, the perfecting process is going on, and it won't be completed until you and I are standing face-to-face, With Jesus Christ. And and every opportunity for a person who has just become a Christian, who is new in Christ, or who is older in Christ, or who's ancient in Christ, is an opportunity to speak a word about Christ. And that's what Peter's telling us. In fact, I want to see four very quick things, maybe a minute per thing. Four ideas. What does he say? How can we use our life for the sake of the gospel. Here's the first one. Do you see it listed there? Christians will be slandered as evildoers. Do you see that? So that when they slander you or speak against you as evildoers, do you realize that as you're dealing with the sin of your own heart each and every day, all these passions, these lustly, flesh, fleshy ideas, You're also to be speaking the gospel to others, and when you do, as a a person who who is trying to do everything they can to be a holy person, you are making a claim to godliness, you're fighting against your sin, you're slaying all of these lusts of your soul, and when you're doing that, and when you're speaking a word of the gospel to someone else, knowing that you're dealing with all the sin of your heart and you're telling them about Christ and the gospel and the hope of heaven and the fruit of a sanctified life, they're not saying, oh, that is so wonderful. That, that is great. I mean, the vast majority of them will say, you know, everything that you're telling me, I'm going to flip that over into some evil idea. I'm going I'm to claim that everything you're telling me and this life that you say you're living is really not true. And they're going to slander you and me, and they're going to tell us that all of this aspiration to godliness and all of this sanctified life and all of this holiness that you keep talking about, you're just a fraud and a fake and a phony. And perhaps some of us might say, you know, yesterday I was I was wondering the same thing. I see the sin of my heart. And I say to myself, who do you think you are? Oh, and that's perhaps maybe when Satan or his henchmen come along and say, yeah, you're nothing special. Yeah, you're making a claim to godliness? You? With what you just did, what you just said? And then the allurements of the world, oh, man, it's three steps forward, two steps back. But you know, that's where this grace of God comes in, the grace to confess sin, the grace to acknowledge my sin before God, and the grace in a gospel conversation with someone to say, look, I'm not saying anything other than I'm like one beggar telling another where he found bread. I found some bread. You're a beggar. I'm a beggar. Let me tell you where I found it. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ who lifted me up out of the miry pit. Oh, I've got issues I'm dealing with every day. But I'm on the way to heaven. Christ has forgiven me. I just celebrated the Lord's Supper with God's people and it was so sweet to me. The bread and the cup, it was emblematic of His soon coming return as as this crucified one, the Savior now resurrected, who's coming again to judge the living and the dead. When He comes, I don't want you to be those among those who are going to be condemned forever. I'm not saying I got my act together completely and totally. I'm not saying that I'm a perfect person by any means. All I'm telling you is here's what Christ did in my life, and here's what He can do in your life. Now, they're going to slander you. And secondly, what else are they going to do? It says, to which they will then slander you as evildoers, but you got to do something else. And what is that second thing? Here it is. You're going to live out your Christianity. Christianity so that they can see something. Do you see that word see in the text? That they got to see something. It says they may see or because of what they see or as they observe them, like the NASB says. What what is the them that they may observe them? The good works. The good works. And what does it presuppose that you and I are endeavoring to walk in Good works at the same time of of your confession and my confession of sin, an appropriate word uh, in inappropriate in lack of love, uh, a, a sinful ask or a sinful thought or a sinful deed in the midst of those that i 'm trying to mortify and kill and, and i 'm trying, trying to slay those things in my life at the very same time as God gives me grace and favor to start to overcome those lusts more than I don't. And as He works in me, He then energizes me to say, I want to do some good deeds for the Lord. I want to work for the Lord. I want to be in ministry for the Lord, whatever ministry, stacking chairs to preach in the gospel from a pulpit. I want to do one of those or everything in between. Just give me, give me the word, Lord. Give me, give me your will and purpose for my life. I want to do it they got to see your good works, that or in order that they may see your good deeds. That's the third one. Did you realize that unbelievers are going to be watching our lives? As they see your behavior, they're going to see something. What is it that they're going to see? They're going to see something. If I'm I'm a professing Christian, I want them to see good works good behavior. I want to see excellence as a Christian. Are they going to see perfection? No, sir. No, ma'am. But we want them to see excellence. I'm striving. I'm pushing. And, number four and finally, they're going to see these good deeds and they're going to glorify God in or on the day of visitation. I think grammatically, don't have time to develop it, but I think grammatically and I think contextually, the day of visitation is not the day when Jesus comes to judge those outside of Christ. The day of visitation is when unbelievers see the life that you're living and I'm living in the here and now, and they come to Christ. The day of visitation is Christ visiting their hearts and opening their hearts by His grace through the word of the gospel that you and I uttered and the lives, the excellent Christian behavior that you and I portrayed before them. Do you want to put a premium, therefore, on the Christian's excellent behavior? You mean to tell me, Lance, that this verse might very well be saying, and I believe it does, that the day of visitation is when Jesus Christ opens their heart to go beyond what they were doing toward you before, and that was to slander you, to slander your good deeds, and they see instead your good deeds, your righteous acts, your holy behavior, even in the midst of your suffering, so that. Jesus Christ visits them with their own salvation. I mean, what a path. What a prize. What an end result. What a reward. And it puts a premium on how we're living. puts a premium not only on what we say, but how we live. And then going right out of that in the next verse for next time this is how you can do that as a citizen. And then this is how you can do it as a worker. And then this is how you can do it as a wife. And then this is how you can do it as a husband. And had we we time, we could say in Ephesians and Colossians, and this is how you can do it as a a child. And here's how you can do it as a parent. And, And here's how they can respond to you for blessings on their life as they follow their Christian parents. I mean, it goes on and on and on. You and I, we aspire to being excellent Christians so that God would visit them with salvation and not judgment. That's, that's the love of evangelism, isn't it? That's the heart of evangelism, and that's the heart of everyone who aspires with Christian behavior that is excellent. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this is our heart. This is our desire. This is our, our hope. This is our aspiration that we would be excellent behavioral Christians with what we do, how we comport ourselves, what, what our lives are like, not just when no one else is looking, but when they're all looking. Not just when we're battling the remaining sin of our own heart in the midst of our own Inner rooms of life and vocation, but when we 're with unbelievers in the neighborhood in the municipality in the in the workplace in the home, oh Father, make us Christians with excellent behavior for the sake of Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel and His Lordship who rules a life through what they both say and how they live. May we be excellent as Christians for our Christ. In His name we pray, amen. Amen.